This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Adward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. On this week's episode, we get to speak with Dr. Kimberly Simcox on maternal substance use disorders, her role as an OB-GYN, and how that intersects with the law. I am Dr. Kimberly Simcox. I work for Carilion Clinic. I am an OBGYN, also boarded in addiction medicine, so I'm very passionate about this topic and treating women with substance use disorders that are pregnant. I have two programs in the region. One is in the New River Valley, where I treat opioid use disorders and addictions during pregnancy. I also provide prenatal care for those patients. I also work in Roanoke and have opened a um, formal office-based opioid treatment program for pregnant women with substance use disorders. I have a great team that works with me. I have a um, psychiatrist, Dr. Jennifer Wells, that works with me. My clinical care coordinator, Leanna Stone, is fantastic. She's a uh, licensed clinical social worker and therapist. I have um, a New River Valley. I have a a nurse, a high-risk perinatal educator. I have a pharmacist. Charlie Teresitas that works with me. We have a great team because um, it does, it takes a village to raise a child and I very much think that that is the same in pregnancy and substance use disorder treatment. Um, so we're very excited about the work that we're doing here because it's so needed and by far this is the most rewarding population to work with in my opinion. <laughs> so I really love yeah. this subject. <laughs> you definitely pretty well versed right. and this is something it's something that we don't really learn about in school at all mm-hmm. I mean we learn about maternal medicine mm-hmm. we learn a little bit about substance use disorders um, and maybe every school is a little different right um, so just starting from a baseline what mm-hmm. are some of the most common substance use disorders that you see in this region and does it change by region when you go to conferences and things like that very much so I think that you know of course just as a you know brief review Definitely tobacco is the most commonly abused substance during pregnancy. We can't forget alcohol, right? These are legal substances. Um, A lot of people are not aware of the risks of using those substances during pregnancy. The most commonly abused illicit substance is marijuana, right? Now we have the legalization, California, everything. Oh, it's natural. So people are very much drawn to uh, marijuana. Um, In other illicit drugs, we are still seeing a lot of opioids and those you know are in um, either prescription pills now we're seeing a lot more heroin as the prescription pills are becoming a little bit harder to obtain now that we've cracked down on prescribing of prescription opioids now it's made room a little bit more room for heroin and now fentanyl which is much more potent so we're seeing a lot more of that we're also seeing um, stimulant use disorder and those and um, that would be stimulants like amphetamines methamphetamines and cocaine cane. Uh, I, the most commonly affected states 
um, generally would definitely be um, states like uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, um, Colorado, New Mexico, Michigan, um, New Hampshire, District of Columbia is one of the leading areas that um, has difficulty with substance use disorder. I would say since we're in this area, we all know rural Appalachia, there was that book written um, by Beth Macy called Dope Sick and that talks about the rise of the opioid epidemic in this region in particular. Great read for any of you all that haven't. It's very sobering and mentions a lot of the nearby school systems and, and regions that you would be familiar with if you go to school at VCOM. So that's a very powerful read. Um, rural Appalachia in this area, we definitely see a lot of methamphetamines. Methamphetamines are very easy to make. You can go buy all the ingredients at your local grocery store or pharmacy. You can make it in your sink, right? Very easily made um, and a very um, high yield, uh, it's very profitable. Um, it also has one of the highest dopamine releases, so it's one of the, um, by far the most addictive substances out there because of that dopamine release with methamphetamines. So in our um, more rural, poorer uh, regions, we see a lot of methamphetamines. Of course, we always see prescription um, pills. We have, we're very much all grew up in a pill popping culture, right? Your left pinky hurts, let's take a pill, right? You would take your grandmother's Percocet, right? If you have a headache. So that's very much the culture in this area. So opioids, um, definitely a front runner. Now that we're, um, I'm definitely seeing more of the heroin because it's cheaper than prescription pills now and fentanyl, a lot of um, uh, the uh, dealers or manufacturers are um, lacing their heroin with fentanyl to make it more addictive and there goes your opioid your opioid overdose rates just soaring because of the addition of fentanyl and a lot of the products that are now on the street. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. I can do this forever. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any research on any of this kind of stuff? You know, with the maternal medicine, oh. we're very scared with to do research on any mm -hmm. sort of medications because right. it's a life that's at Steak potentially, right. so we don't, what we don't IR, give them what IRB is going to approve a pregnant woman, right, using exactly. heroin, right? So I think it's very hard. Research is difficult because a lot of the times you can't just isolate one substance over another. So most of the time, if they are using methamphetamines, they're probably smoking, right, or using other substances. So it's very hard to isolate one substance from another. Um, so research is difficult, but we do have um, great headway, especially with opioid use disorders and pregnancy. Um, uh, great research uh, researchers like uh, Mishka Turplin, Andre Jones, they have great um, data if you're interested in reading more research-based. Caitlin Martin from VCU, they're all um, kind of local um, and state nationwide experts. And so any of their research is probably the most renowned ones and the ones that I go by. Um, they may make the guidelines that I follow. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, hard to do, but it can be done. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have resources for people to continue to look things up Ex even after we have this conversation. Right, exactly, exactly. And I can give you lots of those. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I guess one of the things that's interesting to me is like, when mm -hmm. does someone come and seek treatment from you because. Mm -hmm they know that they either have some sort of substance use disorder or do people even come to you? Right. I think it's really important to um, m to make, so you want to talk a bit more about screening right now or like yeah. the questioning? Well, because you yeah. have so much experience with mm -hmm. addiction right. and substance mm -hmm. use disorders. Mm -hmm. Right. So 
seems like someone would be seeking you out if they need it. Right. And a lot of this area is word of mouth. I mean, most of my patients know because their friend was in a treatment program with me, their friend, mother, cousin. Um, this is a definitely word of mouth area in the New River Valley. Um, I I think it's very important that all obstetricians become very, very comfortable with screening. We need to universally screen our patients. We can't um, just say, hey, sh- her teeth are bad or she doesn't look well kept today. That means I need to screen her. No, we need to universally screen everybody. I don't think there's anybody out in the audience that has not been affected either personally or friend, uh, loved one, family member parent um, uh, that's had a substance use disorder everybody's been affected we have so we have to universally screen Um, I definitely um, recommend screening at the first prenatal visit and when you screen you need to start very general right normalize the question so you say I ask all of my patients about the use of any sort of tobacco, alcohol, illicit or illicit drug during their pregnancy because we are going through an epidemic in our country and we have ways that we can help patients that suffer with these substance use disorders. So you normalize it first and then you ask, is it okay if I ask you questions about this? You want to ask permission. That that creates a therapeutic alliance between the patient and the provider. So you want to first normalize it, second ask permission, get them comfortable. The lovely part about prenatal care is if they say they don't want to talk about it, you see them again a couple weeks later, right? And then you can ask again as you continue to build that rapport with that patient. The screening tests in pregnancy, um, their validated screening tests are typically, um, the uh, my favorites at least, are the um, 4Ps+, plus the uh, integrated 5Ps and the substance use risk profile in pregnancy are my favorite validated screening tools. ACOG has a great committee opinion that lists some of these. Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine will list these validated screening tools as well. Um, the screen, I like the integrated 5P screening tool and I use that in my practice the most because you start very general. So you start asking about questions and parents right so did your parents ever use any substances um, when they were growing up or in the household around you then you can ask about their use in partners does your a significant other um, has he or she ever suffered with a substance use disorder then you ask um, then you ask about use in peers as m- many of my patients don't have relationships with their parents so peers are very very influential to um, their upbringing And then I will also ask, and then you go from there and you make general to more person-centered. So then you go, have you ever had a substance use disorder in the past? Or in the, um, or have you ever used prior to pregnancy? And then I ask specific to use during pregnancy after that. And then I will also ask about tobacco use, right? We can't forget about smoking. Um, and then I'll ask, have they ever had any sort of mental health disorders, right? Because a lot of these men- the mental health disorders um, run hand in hand with substance use disorders. So those are, that's kind of how I start general and then get more specific. 
And then from there, I, you know, I always say that we have, we have treatment, we can help you if you feel comfortable talking to me about this. Um, so always, and then from there, when you screen, um, if then you want to gauge a person's readiness to change. I don't know if you all learned about motivational interviewing in any of your classes, but that is a super, super awesome tool and I use it with all of my uh, patient interviews. It's basically the use of open-ended questions that gauge a patient's readiness to change. So an example would be um, on a scale of one to five, how ready are you to quit smoking? And then the patient would say, well, maybe a three. And then you'd say, well, why not? Why did you, why didn't you say a two or a one? Right? So, and then they tell you what they know and that they know it's harmful. And then they can um, use those open-ended questions to kind of, you know, explain where their train of thought is. A lot of them know it's bad, right? So you don't, they don't necessarily want to hear what they already know, but then you can focus on your counseling from what they already know and their readiness to change, right? So if they're not going to talk about it that day, say, okay, well, let's, why don't we talk about this another day? And you keep asking. So motivational interviewing, there's lots of great videos on the American Society of Addiction Medicine website. Um, that is a great, um, so they have, I use motivational interviewing, not just for substance use disorder patients. I use it for bariatric counseling, uh, diabetes, right? How ready are you to start insulin and get healthy? I use it in all um, preventive medicine um, aspects in my practice. You talk a lot about people, it was word of mouth and whatnot, mm -hmm. that you right. your patients. Mm -hmm. With the stress of pregnancy, because it can be quite difficult, do you ever see patients mm -hmm. that begin to have substance use disorders or that they manifest during the pregnancy as opposed to before? Right, that's an that's an interesting question. So I want to back up a little bit to substance use in pregnancy. So most, as we know, the rates of substance use disorders have considered to rise, have continued to rise during pregnancy over the last decade, okay? But what we find is that as the gestational age increases, the use decreases of each substance. So that's awesome. So by the third trimester, that tends to be when they've cut down their use the most, right? So pregnancy is an extremely motivating time for women to want to get help. Thank God, right? So this is when I, I this is why I love pregnant women because they're so easy to treat. They're thinking about them themselves and their babies, right? They're, they really want to get help in most situations. The use, I would say, most use tends to decrease during pregnancy, but there are some women that will have horrible nausea and vomiting, and they will say, oh, well, marijuana is legal, right? So if I had to say that any substance use increases, possibly marijuana, um, and a lot of people just think it's natural, it's legal, so that they can use it, and it is very effective for nausea and vomiting, but it's not necessarily safe. So in my counseling, I will say, you know, the, the receptors, the cannabinoid receptors in a fetal brain, um, they're, they start at 14 weeks, right? So we know that marijuana, we, we feel that marijuana really plays a role in neuro neurological development. So I will say we don't, most children 
um, born to people that smoke marijuana during pregnancy will have higher rates of uh, hyperactivity, a little bit of cognitive delay um, in pregnancy, more likely to be born low birth weight, possible preterm delivery. So I will work that into my counseling because a lot of people are like, oh, it's not going to hurt me because it's natural and it comes from the earth, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, so I will work that into my counseling for every patient. So to summarize, marijuana may tend to rise, especially in that first trimester, but it's not safe. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, but by far, as gestational age increases, the use tends to decrease, mm -hmm. which is great. <laughs> and now going back to a bit about the drug testing, do you mm -hmm. guys do drug testing throughout if someone says that I have this disorder that I'd like to work on? Or is it more right. of uh, mom gets a drug test? right mm -hmm. after she gives birth right. to know whether she's been using. Right, so that's, yeah, that's a really um, debated question, <laughs> basically uh, all, um, you know, all across the country. My approach to drug testing and drug screening, first, uh, you can get just as much information from a good verbal screen, right? So the first time you meet a patient, you verbally screen. So I will, if I feel like a drug test, and that's a misnomer, we say drug screening, it's really drug testing, right? When you're using saliva or urine, so, or hair follicles, whatever it may be. But I will say, um, I will say, do I have permission to do a urine drug test um, when you're pregnant? So I always ask permission. If they say no, you have to respect that. You have, like, if you're going to do a surgery on a patient, you have to get their consent, right? Um, so I always get consent from a patient before I do a urine drug test. If a patient is resistant and I'm really feeling like this patient is likely, you know, really struggling with this and I'm worried about my baby, I will say, you know, the feet, the baby can be tested, right? And they can use meconium or your, or the cord, the umbilical cord to detect use even months before delivery, right? So, uh, you know, urine, urine, the umbilical cord can detect very early. So I will say, I'd rather know now if you're struggling with something so that I can get you help and that we can improve the health of you and your baby, that maternal infant dyad. I want to know now because if they do test later, then at that point, I can't help you, I'll, you know, or I won't be able to make a difference in the health of your, you and your baby at that point. So I do dangle that carrot a little bit, um, but I do, I do think, and I also explain in my programs, I use drug testing as a guide for their therapy, right? I don't dismiss if somebody has a positive screen because that's not helpful, right? <laughs> um, I will instead use it and say, okay, we have a couple negative drug screens today. That is awesome. Good job. You are working so hard and I'm really proud of you. If we have positive ones, I use it as, you know, we need to kind of tweak the way we're doing your therapy. Uh, we need to either increase counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy. We might need to increase to a higher level of care, like intensive outpatient or residential facilities. And I tell all my patients, I do not use this to dismiss. I use it to guide your treatment. If we use this as punitive, uh, it was, if we use this as punitive, with most people, with 
and that's what most people think it is, they're not going to confide in us. They're not going to tell us and they're not going to be honest with us. So you really need to use this. It's all in how you approach that. You need to ask permission first before you screen. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, it does. And I, we were talking about this before. And to me, it's interesting. I studied bioethics in undergrad. Right, um, right. And this is really the intersection of the law and medicine. Right. And mm-hmm. how we decide what should be punitive and what should not be punitive and right. uh, to me i just i guess i wonder do you have some sort of moral and or legal obligation uh-huh. to present to this information to the law mm-hmm. if you know that somebody is using or has a substance use disorder while pregnant right right so i do i, I do but i think it's the, the thing about substance use disorders is only 25% of people, act, pregnant women, get treatment in pregnancy because they're afraid. They're Of, of those of, that are using. Yes, they are, they're fearful of criminalization. We have historically put people in jail for this. Has it worked? No, right? The rates have continued to rise when we when we've used incarceration of a mom and their and their fetus. It's not worked. We need to get women treatment, not put them in jail. So criminalization by and large does not work. We need to you know, if we need to definitely get encourage people to get in treatment for reporting the state of Virginia, at least the social workers will report any substance exposed infants at the time of delivery. So I will tell my patients that in her treatment, this is the state of Virginia. I, if you are in treatment, you are trying hard. You have you know, come into counseling, you're doing your part, then this shouldn't be an issue for you. Uh, Child Protective Services may come and talk to you. They may come and do a home visit to make sure your baby's okay. Child Protective Services is not the enemy. They want to make sure the children are in safe homes. So that's how I present this to my patients. And I also very much will be their advocate if they've been in treatment. I'll say, look, she's been doing great. She's going to her counseling. Um, and I will talk to the legal services, I'll talk to judges, I will talk to child protective workers. In terms of reporting, it's already going to be reported for a substance exposed infant by social work. If I am concerned about the welfare of a child in the home, I will report. I am legally obligated to report. And I tell my patients this in the very beginning of their treatment. If If I am worried about that, I have to report. It's my job. I don't want to hurt you with this, but I have to tell you that this is a situation where I may report. And I will always tell my patients when I'm reporting it. Um, I have a conversation with them so that they understand why I made that decision and that I'm concerned about them and their child, right? Um, And then another reason why I would report, I think the most common would be, say somebody um, returns to use in the postpartum period and if they're breastfeeding and start say start using methamphetamines again methamphetamines concentrate like four to five times as high in the breast milk as it does in the maternal bloodstream so that is very dangerous for for a baby so if i know a woman is breastfeeding and using methamphetamines, I will report in that situation. But I very much go through reportable things before I patient enters. I do a little treatment contract with the patient and tell them these are the situations where I may report. And so that they know this going into it and it's not surprising and it doesn't seem vindictive um, when I do it. Okay, so yeah, you do need to report definitely, but you need to also encourage treatment, right? Uh, compliance with treatment and not criminalizing. Do we criminalize diabetics? 
or people with hypertension? Do we tell a diabetic woman that doesn't use her insulin that uh, she is more like has a moral failing, right? And I'd argue that not using your insulin during pregnancy is just as harmful to an outcome of a pregnancy. We don't do that. So why have we criminalized substance use disorders? We know more about it. We need to start thinking of this like diabetes or hypertension, just as prevalent, right? That's kind of the hope, I guess, with our generation mm-hmm. of yes. doctors is to move mm-hmm. that mindset away. Totally. Or more towards that. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I guess one of the questions I also had, which you somewhat answered, was 25% of people that are using substances of some form are only 25% are seeking treatment. Right. So do you think the biggest reason that they don't is fear or is there a component of their lower income? So maybe they don't come to the doctors often. Right. I think a lot of it is fear and shame, right? We tend to say, oh, well, you're an addict, right? That's a very permanent statement. So when they go to the doctor's office and they hear somebody say addict or clean and dirty, those terms, it's very um, discouraging and hurtful. uh, And it really discourages them from trusting their physicians, right? So we need to get away from that language, clean and dirty, get away from that, right? It's, It's positive or negative or abstinent, right? Using the word addict is very permanent. So we say people with a substance use disorder. So that's just a little plug for the stigmatizing language that we need to get away from. Um, but I, I historically that happens, right? They don't have any reason to believe that that's not going to happen because they see it all over the social media, the news, right? This woman was incarcerated. Her baby was taken away from her. So they very much are hesitant to report for care. So the more education we can get out there that we do have treatment options. Medicaid, thank God for Medicaid expansion, right? We are we have more access to care and um, because of that, you know, I think that's been a huge player in women wanting to get help is because of edu- Medicaid expansion. They're able to. I think the problem has really been access to care, transportation, right? Lack of, especially in a rural area, that's a big barrier to care daycare, right? If they don't have a safe place for their child to stay when they come in for groups, that's a barrier to care. Also, Medicaid has um, transportation options with their Lyft, um, so you can educate your patients that they can look the, call the number on the back of their Medicaid card and figure out what their um, transportation options are. So that has really increased the um, increased uh, access to care. At this point, I don't know if all states have technically expanded Medicaid. They've had the option to. So Virginia was one of the states that expanded later on. So I think we expanded in 2018, was Mm -hmm. voted on in 2017. So I'd encourage any listeners to check out if your state has expanded Medicaid, if those are, if that's an option. Um, So have you had to learn a lot about the legal system with this job? And was it something that you expected? (laughs) No. Going into medicine? Yeah, I didn't. I I really didn't know I was going to have to do this much um, looking into that. But, you know, every the legal system very much dictates how we do medicine and a lot as much as you know insurance right so you really have to learn about those things um, to help 
figure out what the best way to care for your patients. So I, you know, I, I recently just went into the jail at Western Virginia Regional Jail and had a really eye-opening experience going in there and seeing how they handle different situations. Um, and it also helped me learn a little bit more about the legal system and the options they do have in the jail, which they do have some good programs for patients. But do I think people need to be criminalized off the bat and put in jail for this? No. And a lot of the people in the jail don't feel that way either. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's very important to um, familiarize yourself with the rules in your state and the reporting in your state, the DSS or Child Protective Services um, policies. It's And a lot of times if you're if you have questions, call a social worker. They're going to know it. <laughs> so they've been my by far my biggest um, helpers in learning the different legal ramifications of different things, when to report, when not. And this, I, I want listeners to know also that this podcast is mostly focused on the maternal side of things. We mm-hmm. will be covering neonatal abstinence syndrome and how yes. that might impact the child. Mm-hmm. Um, there are obviously ramifications for right. children as well. And so... Mm-hmm. We don't want to criminalize, obviously, but it is a contentious topic to talk about criminalization and yes. whether we're thinking best about baby or about mom. But mm-hmm. realistically, we need to think about both. And what yes. you were talking about it's keeping families together. Mm-hmm. The maternal, you can't have health in one without health in the other. So you have to be thinking about the maternal infant dyad. It's such an important term. Um, the best medicine for a baby is its mother, right? So there's nothing stronger than that bond um, and the health of, you know and there and it really very much helps the health of the mom and the baby and we have to focus on them as a unit yeah um, to improve care in this re- in this area yeah and then mm-hmm. the last question I always like to mm-hmm. ask is you know most of the audience is medical students or aspiring medical students do yeah. you have any bits of advice oh my god for us of- yeah I'd say I know that medical schools tend to lack in addiction um, and substance use disorder uh, education, and that is very sad. We need to have just as much on this as we do in diabetes and hypertension, right? It's the same thing. So if you're so advocate for more education in your schools, go work any you can work with me, any physicians that work in this area you want the more comfortable you become talking about substance use disorders the the better and the more rewarding your time with these patients is going to be there is nothing better than seeing a woman get her life together be involved in her child's life um, you know get a job go you know support her child and there's nothing more rewarding than that so um, don't be discouraged by this it, it's just such a it's a cool cool subject so you get a little bit of everything you know medicine psychology <laughs> psychosocial legal ed- education um, I definitely encourage people to be comfortable in this field and to pursue it if your family practice especially you know family practice providers in VCOM, right? We have a lot of primary care providers that come out of VCOM. We desperately need more family practice or primary care providers comfortable in taking care of this patient population. So I encourage you to become buprenorphine wavered or get educated in this topic because all you're you're not going to go a day without seeing a patient with a substance use disorder. Get comfortable, right? Yeah. Get comfortable and be compassionate, right? Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking with us. Anytime. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it.
and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.